Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater. And this midnight, I will tell you the tale of the deadly witch. If you ever happen to be driving down the sleepy, lonesome stretch of U.S. Route 41 in Adams, Tennessee, a small community of only 500 souls, you will pass by a marker placed there by the Tennessee Historical Commission. It reads, Bell Witch. To the north was the farm of John Bell, an early prominent settler from North Carolina. According to legend, his family was harried in the early 19th century by the famous Bell Witch. She kept the household in turmoil, assaulted Bell, and drove off Betsy Bell's suitor. Even Andrew Jackson, who came to investigate, retreated to Nashville as his coach wheels stopped mysteriously. Many visitors to the house saw the furniture crash about them and heard her shriek, sing, and curse. The tale of the Bell Witch is one of the most famous pieces of legend and folklore in the southern United States, notorious for being one of the only cases where a supernatural entity is credited with causing the death of a human being. Although the events related to the Bell Witch legend occurred between 1817 and 1821, the first written account of the tale that survives is from 1880, 60 years after the events transpired. The story was included in a brief history of Robertson County that was printed for the Nashville Centennial Exhibition. The author of this brief account is unknown. The story of the Bell Witch is also included in the Goodspeed Brothers' book History of Tennessee, published in 1886. They write, A remarkable occurrence which attracted widespread interest, was connected with the family of John Bell, who settled near what is now Adams about 1804. So great was the excitement that people came from hundreds of miles around to witness the manifestations of what was popularly known as the Bell Witch. The witch was supposed to be some spiritual being having the voice and attributes of a woman, it was invisible to the eye, yet it would hold conversation and even shake hands with certain individuals. The freaks it performed were wonderful and seemingly designed to annoy the family. It would take sugar from the bowls, spill the milk, take the quilts from the beds, slap and pinch the children, and then laugh at the discomfiture of its victims. At first it was supposed to be a good spirit, 
but its subsequent acts, together with the curses with which it supplemented its remarks, proved the contrary. A volume might be written concerning the performances of this wonderful being, as they are now described by contemporaries and their descendants. That all this actually occurred will not be disputed, nor will a rational explanation be attempted. It is merely introduced as an example of superstition, strong in the minds of all but a few in those times, and not yet wholly extinct. Such a volume was eventually written by a man named Martin Van Buren Ingram. Born in Kentucky on June 20, 1832, Ingram fought during the Civil War, but was discharged after the Battle of Shiloh due to injury. He became a journalist, and in 1891, Ingram traveled to Adams, Tennessee, to research the history of the Bell Witch and interview anyone who was still living who had experienced the events directly. One of the people Ingram connected with was James Allen Bell, a former Tennessee state representative who was the son of Richard Wilson Bell and the grandson of John Bell, Jr. James Allen Bell wrote Ingram a letter, saying that he had a primary source for the Bell witch haunting in his possession. His father, Richard Wilson Bell, had written a first-hand account of the events he named Our Family Trouble. Richard Bell had been a child aged 6 through 10 during the Bell witch's initial manifestation, 17 when the spirit returned in 1828 and wrote his memoirs when he was in his thirties. His son, James Allen Bell, reportedly wrote to Ingram, Now, nearly seventy-five years having elapsed, the old members of the family who suffered the torments having all passed away, and the witch story still continues to be discussed as widely as the family name is known under misconception of the facts. I have concluded that in justice to the memory of an honored ancestry, and to the public also whose minds have been abused in regard to the matter, it would be well to give the whole story to the world. Richard Wilson Bell's account of the Bell Witch became the central part of the book Martin Van Buren Ingram was writing, which he called An Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch, the Wonder of the Nineteenth Century, and Unexplained Phenomenon of the Christian Era, the Mysterious Talking Goblin that Terrorized the West End of Robertson County, Tennessee, Tormenting John Bell to His Death, the Story of Betsy Bell, Her Lover, and the Haunting Sphinx. The book's title was shortened to An Authenticated History of the Bell Witch when it was finally published in 1894. A newspaper article written at the time of the book's release claimed that the publishing had actually been delayed by the witch. The publisher stated the witch appeared at the printing press one night and demonstrated her fearful powers with maniacal singing, laughter, prayers, moaning, clapping, and rattling of the roof. The phenomena reportedly caused the printers to flee from the building in terror. Martin Van Buren Ingram's book 
containing Richard Wilson Bell's supposed primary source account is the main document we have chronicling the tale of the Bell Witch. This is the story which has been handed down through the generations. It is a legend that still reverberates throughout the region to this day. John Bell was born in Halifax County, North Carolina, in 1750. In 1782, when John Bell was 32 years old, he married Lucy Williams, the daughter of another wealthy farmer in the neighborhood. John and Wilsey Bell started a farm of their own and became very rich and influential throughout the area. Like many farming families in the area, the Bell family used enslaved Africans to do the bulk of their labor. There is one story, passed down, that John Bell murdered one of his enslaved overseers, and that act spurred the family to leave North Carolina. In 1804, the Bell family moved to the area of the Red River in Robertson County, Tennessee, which would later become known as the town of Adams. There, the Bell family prospered. John and Lucy Bell had nine children, Jesse, John Jr., Drury, Benjamin, Esther, Zadok, Elizabeth, known as Betsy, Richard, and Joel. Benjamin died while he was still a child. Zadok became a very successful lawyer, but also died relatively young. Jesse and Esther were both married by 1817 and had moved away. The remaining five children were present when their terrifying family trouble began. One day in 1817... John Bell was walking through his cornfield when he saw a creature, an unnatural animal that had the body of a dog and the head of a rabbit. Its red, demonic eyes stared at him. When John Bell fired at the creature, it disappeared. Soon after this eerie encounter, John's son Drury was walking the grounds of the Bell Farm when he encountered a bird that was perched upon a wooden fence. The bird was as black as ebony and of an extraordinary size, much larger than any natural bird could be. Drury felt that the strange bird was watching him, and then it flew away and vanished. Around the same time, John Bell's daughter Betsy walked outside of the two-story log cabin her family lived in. It was a beautiful afternoon. Betsy Bell looked at the huge, ancient oak tree that spread its spidery branches over the house. On one of the branches, a woman was sitting completely still, 
It was a woman Betsy Bell had never seen before. An old hag wearing a green dress, her eyes staring unrelentingly at Betsy. And then suddenly, the strange woman was gone. That night, Dean, one of the enslaved Africans who worked on the Bell Farm, was walking through the woods to go visit his wife. It was a dark, moonless night, and the wind whispered through the trees. As Dean walked through the lonely woods, he heard something following him. Finally, he turned around and saw the thing haunting his footsteps was a large, black dog. The dog growled at him, and Dean began walking faster. He continued to be followed. When he looked back again, he could still see the black dog. But now, it was headless. Then it vanished. When Dean reached his wife's cabin and told her what had happened, she made him a witch ball to protect him from the evil spirit lurking in the deep, dark woods. After the sun set each evening, the Bell family began to experience strange things in the night. When the family had all retired to bed, they would hear the terrifying sounds of someone or something knocking and scratching on the walls of their cabin from the outside. John Bell would often run out of the house with his rifle to catch the perpetrators, but no one was ever found. These sounds, echoing loudly in the midnight gloom, terrified the entire family. And then the sounds began to move inside the cabin itself. The children reported that they would be drifting off to sleep when all of a sudden the sounds of something chewing on their bedposts would be heard. They would light candles and the sounds would stop. No rats or mice were ever detected and no teeth marks were ever found on the wood. When they blew the candles out and were again in pitch black darkness, the gnawing sounds would begin again and eventually become louder and louder as if a giant dog was clawing at the wooden floor with its nails. In Our Family Trouble, Richard Wilson Bell writes, the demonstrations continued to increase, and finally the bed covering commenced slipping off the foot of the beds as if gradually drawn by someone, and occasionally a noise like the smacking of lips, and then a gulping sound, like someone choking or strangling, while the vicious gnawing of the bedpost continued and there was no such thing as sleep to be thought of until the noise ceased, which was generally between one and three o'clock in the morning. 
Some new performance was added every night, and it troubled my sister Betsy more than anyone else. Occasionally, the sound was like heavy stones falling to the floor, then like chains dragging and chairs falling over. One night, I had just fallen into a sweet doze when I felt my hair beginning to twist and then a sudden jerk which raised me. It felt like the top of my head had been taken off. Next, Betsy was screaming in her room, and ever after that something was continually pulling at her hair after she went to bed. This transaction frightened us all so badly that mother and father often remained up nearly all night. The Bells finally invited a family friend named James Johnston to stay the night and give his verdict on what was happening. As soon as all the lights were out in the bell cabin, all the strange sounds began again, and James Johnston heard it all. He called out in the darkness, In the name of the Lord, what or who are you? What do you want and why are you here? Then everything went eerily silent. Richard Wilson Bell wrote what happened next. It commenced again with increased vigor, pulling the cover from the beds in spite of all our resistance, going from one room to another, becoming fearful. The persecutions of Betsy were increased to an extent that excited serious apprehensions. Her cheeks were frequently crimsoned as by a hard blow from an open hand, and her hair pulled until she would scream with pain, and her body was stuck with invisible pins. The next morning, when John Bell asked James Johnston what he thought, Johnston, a very God-fearing man, said, it is a spirit, just like in the Bible. Word of the Bell's family trouble soon spread throughout the community. From that point on, various neighbors came to visit the Bell cabin to witness the supernatural activity for themselves. They were never disappointed, and soon things began to escalate dramatically. Richard Wilson Bell's account continues. The phenomena continued to develop force, and visitors persisted in urging the spirit to talk, and finally it commenced whistling when spoken to, in a low, broken sound, as if trying to speak in a whistling voice, and in this way it progressed, developing until the whistling sound was changed to a weak, faltering whisper uttering indistinct words. The voice, however, gradually gained strength in articulating, and soon the utterances became distinct in a low whisper. The voice soon developed sufficient strength to be distinctly heard by everyone in the room. Finally, in answer to the eternal question, Who are you and what do you want? 
the disembodied voice replied, I am a spirit. I was once very happy, but have been disturbed. Then another question was asked, How were you disturbed, and what makes you unhappy? The spectral voice replied, I am the spirit of a person who is buried in the woods nearby, and my grave has been dis- has been disturbed, my bones disinterred and scattered, and one of my teeth was lost under this house, and I am here looking for that tooth. This was the first of many times that the spirit that became known as the Bell Witch spoke about events that had really happened and were true. Richard Wilson Bell writes, This statement revived the memory of a circumstance that had occurred some three or four years previously and had been entirely forgotten. The farmhands, while engaged in clearing the plot of land, discovered a small mound of graves, which father supposed to be an Indian burying ground, and worked around it without obliterating the marks. Several days later, Gorbin Hall, a young man of the neighborhood, came to our place and was told by my brother Drury the circumstance of finding the Indian graves. Hall thought the graves probably contained some relics which Indians commonly buried with their dead and proposed to open one and see, to which Drury agreed, and they proceeded to disinter the bones. Finding nothing else, Hall brought the jawbone to the house, and while sitting in the passage threw it against the opposite wall, and the jarring knocked out a loose tooth which dropped through a crack in the floor. To appease the spirit, John Bell went so far as to tear up the floorboards under the section of the cabin where the tooth had fallen years before. The earth underneath was examined thoroughly, but no tooth was found. Then the specter's loud laughter was heard echoing through the bell cabin, and the disembodied voice declared it had all been a trick to fool Old Jack, the name for which the spirit always subsequently referred to John Bell. Richard Williams Bell said, The excitement of the country increased as the phenomena developed, The fame of the witch had become widely spread, and people came from all quarters to hear the strange and unaccountable voice. Some were detectives, confident of exposing the mystery. Various opinions were formed and expressed. Some believed it an Indian spirit, some thought it was an evil spirit, others declared it was witchcraft, and a few unkindly charged that it was magic art and trickery gotten up by the Bell family to draw crowds and make money. These same people had stayed as long as they wished, enjoyed father's hospitality, and paid not a cent for it, nor did it ever cost anyone a half-shilling. The house was open to anyone that came. Father and mother gave them the best they had. Their horses were fed, and no one allowed to go away hungry. Many offered pay and urged father to receive it, but he consistently declined remuneration. 
Not one of the family ever received assent. Father regarded the phenomena as an affliction, a calamity. Then one day the spirit said, I am the spirit of an early immigrant who brought a large sum of money and buried my treasure for safekeeping until needed. In the meanwhile, I died without divulging the secret, and I have returned in the spirit for the purpose of making known the hiding place, and I want Betsy Bell to have the money. Richard William Bell the spirit went on to state that the money was under a large flat rock at the mouth of the spring on the southwest corner of the farm on the Red River, describing the surroundings so minutely that there could be no mistake. A group of Bell family members and friends found the location of the buried treasure exactly as the specter's voice had described down to the last minute detail. They removed large rocks and dug down deep, but they found nothing but dirt. The sound of sharply piercing, unearthly, disturbing laughter followed them all the way home. Finally, a preacher Reverend James Gunn came to visit the haunted bell house. He read verses from the holy scriptures aloud with the family in their cabin, and then the old supernatural sounds began again. Reverend Gunn raised his Bible and said, In the name of God, who are you and what do you want? There was a long silence, and then a great shrieking. I am old Kate Bat's witch, and I will torment Jack Bell out of his life. Kate Bat's was the daughter of John Williams Jr., who was Lucy Bell's older brother. She felt she had been cheated by John Bell in a land purchase and vowed to get even with him and his family for what he had done to her. Kate's husband, Frederick Batts, had been in poor health for many years, and when he died she took over the running of the farm herself, which was very unusual for the time. She was shunned by the community for being an eccentric, but what people seemed to dislike most was that Kate Batts was an independent woman unafraid to speak her mind. Because of that trait, there were rumors that she practiced witchcraft and that she had sent the entity known as the Bell Witch to kill John Bell. Throughout the rest of the family's ordeal of terror, the spirit answered, to the name of Kate. As the supernatural events became more powerful, John Bell brought up the idea of moving to his family, and then the spirit was heard to laugh and say, I will follow you to the remotest ends of the earth, old Jack. The attacks on Betsy Bell also became much worse. Her brother, Richard, uh, Richard Wilson Bell said, 
sister was now subjected to fainting spells, followed by prostration, characterized by shortness of breath and smothering sensations, panting as if it were for life and becoming entirely exhausted and lifeless, losing her breath for nearly a minute between gasps, and was rendered unconscious. These spells lasted from 30 to 40 minutes and passed suddenly, leaving her perfectly restored. There is no positive evidence that these spells were produced by the witch. However, that was the conclusion from the fact there was no other apparent cause. During these spells experienced by Betsy Bell, the spirit never spoke a word, but would resume talking as soon as Betsy had recovered. The Bell Witch seemed violently opposed to Betsy's engagement to a man named Joshua Gardner and would beg Betsy never to marry him. Betsy Bell is recorded as saying later in her life, When the spirit became so tantalizing, filling my mind with horror and causing me to become so nervous, my parents often sent me to a neighbor's to rest for the night. My first night away from home was spent with Thene Thorne. When we were tired, there came a loud knocking on our outside door, which seemed to fly open, and a great gust of wind was felt. Thene sprang up at once and lit a candle. To our surprise, the door was open. Then a voice spoke softly. Betsy, you should not have come over here. You know I can follow you anywhere. Now get a good night's sleep. A soft hand patted my cheek, and the voice again assured us we would not be disturbed any more that night. Some even began to wonder if Betsy herself might have been responsible for the witch's voice, since it only spoke when she was present but the entity also displayed knowledge that Betsy could not have known. The spirit seemed to have an eloquent grasp of theology, able to quote any passage in the Bible, and often repeated whole sermons word for word in front of ministers and parishioners who came to visit the bell cabin in one case, repeating two sermons that had been given at the same time, at two different churches, twelve miles apart from one another. One pastor asked the spirit how it came to know the words from the sermon he had preached earlier that day, and the specter answered, I was present and heard you. Although it tortured John Bell Sr. and Betsy Bell, the witch was exceedingly fond of John's wife, Lucy, who she affectionately referred to as Luce, saying she was the most perfect woman to walk the earth. When Lucy Bell became gravely ill and was feared to die, the entity sang hymns to Lucy to comfort her until she made a full recovery and even made gifts of fruit and hazelnuts 
appear on Lucy's bed. The Bell Witch also seemed to be fond of John Bell Jr., often engaging him in long conversations about religion. However, John Bell Jr. never trusted it, saying it was a spirit of the damned. When John Bell Jr. once said this out loud, the spectral voice uttered these chilling words in reply. I am a spirit from everywhere, heaven, hell, the earth. I am in the air, the houses, any place, at any time. I have been created millions of years. That is all I will tell you. Betsy Bell, worn down by the witch's constant persecution, gave in to the spirit's wishes and broke off her engagement to Joshua Gardner in 1820. After she did this, her torment ceased. Then John Bell Sr., the main object of the spirit's afflictions, began to fall strangely sick. Richard Wilson Bell writes, he complained of a curious, sensational feeling in his mouth, a stiffness of the tongue which swelled from the sides and pressed against his jaws so that he could neither talk nor eat for ten or fifteen hours at a time. Then Father was seized by another malady that caused him much trouble and suffering. This was contortions of the face, a twitching and dancing of his flesh. Why should my father, John Bell, be inflicted with such a terrible curse? While father was afflicted, the demon would rave and curse at him and sing derisive songs. As one spell passed off, I saw tears chasing down father's yet quivering cheeks. He turned to me and said, Oh, my son... My son, not long will you have a father. I cannot much, lo much not longer survive the persecutions of this terrible thing. It is killing me by slow tortures, and I feel that the end is nigh. On December 19th, 1820, John Bell Sr. was not able to get out of his bed. John Jr. went to get his father's medicine, but instead found a strange vial no one had ever seen before. The glass vial was filled with a dark, smoky liquid. Then they heard the voice of the Bell Witch. It's useless for you to try and save old Jack. I've got him this time. I gave old Jack a big dose of that last night while he was asleep, which fixed him. He will never get up from that bed again. John Jr. fed some of the contents of the strange vial to a cat, which died immediately. 
Then he hurled the vial of poison into the fireplace, where it erupted into a blue flame. John Bell Sr. never regained consciousness. He died the next day, on December 20th, 1820. At the moment of his death, the witch's voice finally fell silent. Almost the entire community came to John Bell Sr.'s funeral. As soon as the minister began speaking, the sound of the bell witch's voice was heard piercing the air, overpowering the words of prayer with mocking laughter and singing the drinking song, Row me up some brandy, oh. The entity did not stop until the final mourner left the graveyard. In 1821, Betsy Bell married Richard Powell, her former school teacher. He had been in love with Betsy for some time and was deeply saddened when she became engaged to Joshua Gardner, although he said he wished her a long and happy life with him. After Betsy ended the engagement, Richard began courting her again, and they married and moved to Mississippi. Interestingly, some accounts say that Richard Powell also studied the occult in his spare time. Richard Wilson Bell writes, The witch remained with us after father's death. Through the spring and win- through the winter and spring of 1821, all the while diminishing or becoming less demonstrative, finally it took leave of the family, bidding mother, old Luce, an affectionate farewell, saying that it would be absent seven years, but then would return to see us. This promise was fulfilled. It returned during February 1828. The family was then nearly broken up. Mother, Joel, and myself were the only occupants left at the old homestead. The demonstrations announcing its return were precisely the same that characterized its first appearance, scratching on the outside of the house, and then appearing the same way on the inside, scratching on the bedpost and pulling the covers from my bed as fast as I could replace it, keeping all of us up nearly all night. We sat up till a late hour, discussing the matter, satisfied it was the same old Kate, and agreed not to talk to the witch, and that we would keep the matter a profound secret to ourselves, hoping that it would soon leave, as it did, after disturbing us in this way for some two weeks. This was my last experience with Kate. The witch came and went. Hundreds of people witnessed it, and many of the best people of Robertson and adjoining counties have testified to these facts, telling the story over and over to the younger generation. Whether it was witchery, 
such as afflicted people in past centuries and the darker ages, whether some gifted fiend of hellish nature practicing sorcery for selfish and enjoyment or some more modern science akin to that of mesmerism mm -hmm. or some hobgoblin native to the wilds of the country or disembodied soul shut out from heaven or an evil spirit like those Paul drove out of the man into the swine setting them mad or a demon let loose from hell I am unable to decide nor has anyone yet divined its nature or cause for appearing, and I trust this description of the monster in all forms and shapes and of many tongues will lead experts who may come with a wiser generation to a correct conclusion and satisfa satisfactory explanation. The primary account of the Bell Witch haunting our family trouble, exists only as part of the published text of Martin V. Ingram's book, An, Authentic, An Authenticated History of the Bell Witch. The story goes that Ingram never returned the original manuscript to the family, but some wonder if it ever existed at all, and how much of the tale Ingram exaggerated or made up. One of the most famous stories in the book details future President of the United States Andrew Jackson visiting the Bell Cabin and experiencing the witch. This most certainly did not happen, as Jackson's movements during this period were exhaustively documented. He never went near the Bell Witch. But it makes for a good tale, doesn't it? It's still repeated as part of the legend to this day. Throughout the 20th century and still to the present day, people report strange activity on the site of the old bell farm. The cabin has been rebuilt and now serves as a museum. Nearby is what is now known as the Bell Witch Cave, which was added to the National Historic Registry in 2008 and is also open for tours. Stories of hauntings of the cave have been consistent through the years, with visitors seeing the apparition of an old woman and hearing the voice, the sounds of laughter and shrieking coming from deep within the dark cavernous void. The paranormal reality show Ghost Adventures filmed an episode at Bell Witch Cave in 2015. Movies indirectly and directly inspired by the Bell Witch haunting include The Blair Witch Project and An American Haunting, and also continue to bring tourists to the small town in Robertson County. The community of Adams, Tennessee, celebrates its history of supernatural folklore. Descendants of the Bell family and other families linked to the legend still live there. Every October, the town hosts the Bell Witch Fall Festival, a celebration of arts, culture, and music created to promote, 
preserve, and transmit the stories, traditions, and culture of the Sulphur Fork and Red River area of Robertson County, Tennessee, through quality theatrical productions and other means. One of three plays the festival presents is called Spirit, the Authentic Bell Witch Experience, written by David Alford and performed annually since 2002. The production is mounted in an open-air theater on the grounds of the Bell High School, land that was settled by John Bell Sr., and only yards away from the cemetery where the Bell family is buried. Sarah Head, who runs the Bell Witch Fall Festival, said in an interview in 2008, We almost always have something unusual happen. As the stories go, one of the ways the Bell Witch appeared was as a black dog. And just about every year, a black dog that doesn't belong to anyone comes around during the rehearsals or the performances. Amy Fluker, a historian at the University of Mississippi, said this about her research into the legend of the Bell Witch. As a historian of collective memory, it matters very little to my research if hauntings are real or not. It does matter that people believe that they are. As a result, they can help us understand the perspectives in this case of 19th and 20th century Americans. We'll never know exactly what happened to the Bell family between 1817 and 1821. Was it witchcraft, a haunting, a poltergeist, a demonic entity? Is the legend real, or was it faked, exaggerated, until the truth gets lost in the tale. Perhaps it doesn't matter in the end. The story lives, and sometimes that is enough. Next time we meet, I will tell you the tale of a ghost ship, the most haunted one in the world, the RMS Queen Mary. If you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theater on Facebook. If you wish to support this podcast, and get access to transcripts of all episodes and other horror content I'm writing and recording, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. My name is Josh Hitchens, and this is Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together. I wish you all very pleasant dreams, and now, going dark.